Hey, y'all. So this week, Stefan is out. So we're doing a little bit more of a nerd podcast. I've invited Steve Masinski here to chat with us about in-depth technical topics. If that sounds like your jam, listen on. If not, Stefan will be back next week and we will have more boring suit discussions. Talk with you next time. Hello and welcome to the Automated Podcast, coming to you semi-weekly-ish in the last little while. <laughs> We've had a, a few busy weeks, so we're trying to get another one out here. And this week with me is Steve Masinski. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your background. Okay. Well, up until for the last uh, four or five years or so, I've been at Samsung Research leading the the ROS2 navigation project, also known as Nav2. So it's, it's been quite an exciting journey for the last two years. So starting off at a couple startup companies in the Silicon Valley area and building various navigation technologies for like indoor grocery store robots, which are around you know people all the time and in very dynamic settings, which is very exciting. And then kind of transitioning into Samsung Research on a more research role to build out the general framework of navigation rather than for one particular product, but for a larger classes of, of products and problems in the, you know, both warehouse spaces as well as outdoors and in, you know, the front of house and retail stores and really just all over the all over the place where you might want to put mobile robots. Yeah, totally. I mean, we've been chatting a little bit because uh, Polymath's mission to move to a more general navigation stack, general localization stack is kind of very much in line with that. We depend pretty heavily on your work. So I, I very much appreciate you coming out and chatting with us this week. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's why I do all this stuff. I, I love seeing my work have impact all over the industry. So, you know, I couldn't work at one company and make an impact on one particular product. But, you know, having an open source to be able to impact the entire industry is just such a pleasure. You don't get you don't get that opportunity very many times in life. So when you do, you got to you know, grab it by the horns and, and, and go with it. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think in robotics in particular, but software industry in general, there's been a move away from this kind of feeling of, oh, open source, that means it's not serious. And and it's been more towards, oh, open source, that usually means there's a higher bar of quality and it's been reviewed independently. Do you feel you get that kind of pushback? You know, it really depends. You know, some projects, I think both both have, have real valid concerns depending on what product you're talking about. You know, some some of them, you know, in the raw ecosystem, I would agree are kind of a hobbyist grade, let's say, and that I, I wouldn't personally use in my, in my systems. But then there's other things, you know, like Foxglove Studio and Nav2, hopefully you think, and some other, other systems Absolutely. which are w- way more production focused. Yeah, you know, high test coverage, you know, reliable used by, you know, real companies and real applications, you know, really deployed at, at reasonable scales. But yeah, you know, I, I think it depends on the, the community around it. The more communities that have things like open source foundations, so they have rules about contribution and quality standards and all these kinds of things makes that technology more reliable to interact with. But someone's random open source project, maybe maybe a little less so. So it kind of it kind of depends on some context. And it takes a, a couple of years of working in the software industry to kind of see that subtle difference between the, the, those two kinds of projects. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get right back to that topic and gaps and contributions needed in the community. But to kick us off, as usual, let's start with our game that we play every week. So for those just tuning in, what we do is usually it's Stefan and and I, but this week it'll be Steve and I kind of playing the role of two co-founders trying to build a robotics company around some business idea that we have and some technology that Steve playing the role of the CTO really, really wants to use or really hates. That's an option too. You could say anti this. So we'll go for it. So I'm going to pick a random card here and we'll try to build a quick 10 minute business. So let's see, random new deck of cards this week. And let's see here. Farm. All right. Okay, a farm. Farm right. setting. That's a, that's a pretty open field, so to speak. <laughs> Usually my job. Yeah. All right. Oh, and okay. if you want to pick a tech. Okay. Farm teleoperation. 
Wow, this almost feels like something that a uh, polymath might might have some demonstrations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so usually let's let's try to twist this out of its usual operation. So instead of you know building a reasonable robot that drives, mm. why don't we completely replicate a human and have you teleoperating it to pick strawberries by hand entirely? Oh, are we in like? Uh, I mean, if we're gonna do that, I mean, we have to be in like the Chernobyl exclusion zone or something. There you go. I mean, oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Very rich soil in in Ukraine generally. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know about that the whole radioactive thing, but you know, I, I know after the the nuclear meltdowns in in Japan, you can get like peaches from that region that are like a thousand dollars each or something. So, well, of course, you know, may, maybe the radioactivity makes things delicious. I don't know. There was a whole. <laughs> There was a whole field of radioactive science to force beneficial mutations on plants. Oh, oh, there you go. You know, it, it, this this is all intentional. You know, right. the, the Soviet Union really they knew what they were doing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So we're building radiation-resistant humanoid-ish farmers in in Chernobyl. Okay. All right. What sensor set do we need? <laughs> I think a Geiger counter might might be. Uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why we'll need that, but I'm, I'm I'm sure that that might be some interesting data at least to collect no matter what. You know, maybe we can sell that back to the government or something. I don't know. There, there might be like a secondary revenue stream we can get get from that. I've always thought the clicking is is not interesting enough. We got to pass it through some sort of AI filter to generate you know a, a song it sings. That's good. That's a good point. You know, maybe like have from like peaceful to like death metal. Yeah, like there you go. There's your, and there's your. Yeah, yep. yeah. Rather, rather having like tourists have Geiger counters now, they're just like listening to the songs of the farmers in the wind. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and then there's the one farmer playing death metal on fire, running towards you, <laughs> full speed away from the hot zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, that might be, if if that's your first sign that you shouldn't be there, <laughs> certainly it'll be your last. <laughs> yeah. So Geiger counter. What else do we need to do farming in an exclusion zone? Oh, I mean, sensor-wise, I mean, I mean the usual and you know, cameras, you know, radar, you know, yada yada yada. There's been a lot of IoT work happening in like soil moisture and humidity content, those kind of things. Um, I actually did a hackathon at the Budweiser sponsored hackathon regarding that when I was in college. That was kind of interesting. But yeah, I don't, I mean, what else do you think you would need? That's awesome. Well, I think given the general geopolitical situation right now, probably some sort of camouflage would be a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> to speak a little bit towards the realistic, it's been interesting. We, we've talked. To a number of groups doing farming robotics and one of the really hard crops are fragile crops like strawberries because mm-hmm. they're really low to the ground they're really squishy and they grow in kind of all sorts of directions and so crops for strawberries are trying to adjust how they plant strawberries on these kind of plastic sheets so that it's really obvious to see where the berry is versus this plastic background. Oh, yeah. I think I've seen like videos like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, they're, they're kind of like not really in the ground. They're just kind of hanging out the side of a Hang- trough or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And here, the added benefit is you're plasticking the soils so that it doesn't blow away and spread radioactivity <laughs> outside yeah, of yeah, the yeah. Zone. I mean, we could just make this real easy, you know, and just have, have like some blenders. We just pick up the entire plant, you know, throw some, <laughs> some arugula in there and it's now just a smoothie product. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Gives you that healthy glow, yeah. that radium <laughs> yeah, glow yeah. <laughs> from our system. Why would it have to be humanoid if we're gonna if we're gonna go down this ridiculous path? I mean, why? I mean, why not? I mean, humans are humanoid. I mean, it, it's just like having you know a bunch of import labor that you have doing ease doing of teleoperation. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ease of teleoperation, certainly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just yeah, exactly. Nicole's making motion. You reach down and you pick up this virtual strawberries by hand, <laughs> <laughs> exactly while you're playing death metal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, if we're going to plant some some crops there, I mean, like, what what would we want? What would we want to, to harvest? I mean, it's going to have to be something really valuable. That's well, what I was thinking is that I, I, I saw, like, online, they had, like, a Chernobyl vodka. 
where it's made of like the potatoes from the Chernobyl sites that were then like distilled. And as part of that process, you remove the ra- ra- radioactivity, hopefully, <laughs> I, I assume. And uh, yeah, I mean, so we can make like, oh, oh, we can make like really good scotch. That's what we could do. Because I mean, they, 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 you know, Ukraine soil is good for grain and that kind of stuff. So yeah, we can, yeah definitely start to make some like, you know, really high end, you know, there's got to be a pun to be made there with radioactivity, you know. <laughs> yeah, we can't call it scotch, though. It's going to have to be called whiskey or, or oh, you know, yeah, those yeah. it's not in Scotland, but... Yeah, no, that's a great idea. You know, because you're you're gonna need these centrifuges to to spin out the radioactivity. You're gonna get a visit from Uncle Sam of like, what are you using the centrifuges for? Vodka. Okay, that's the least yeah, yeah. worrisome thing <laughs> we had in mind for this. That's I mean, awesome. you, you know, they're they're really sensitive. You know, you know when they you know people are importing you know, aluminum tubes somehow that's yeah, exactly. part of the centrifuge. So, well, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Again, with that geopolitical situation right now, death metal playing humanoid robots in camouflage around well, Chernobyl might be a warning sign. Well, it's definitely why it can't be vodka. The Russians would just steal it all. So if you make it, you know, some nice whiskey, you know, I don't it's, know. It's, it's camouflaged enough for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. So what are we going to call this horribly doomsday looking machine roving the countryside? It's a good question. <laughs> it's, it's a, has a very vivid essence about it that I can't quite, I can't quite summarize. I feel, I feel like just a new word needs to be invented for it. <laughs> Even the not terrible, but embrightening. Yeah, no, the, Ivan the Radiant. Oh, there we go. There like go. That. Yeah, yeah. Ivan the Radiant, three thousand, of course, in Stefan's honor. For, uh, <laughs> for that's always the product. Ivan the Radiant, three thousand, coming to you as soon as the war ends, maybe before, for the low price of well, what's your military budget look like? <laughs> All right, transitioning over to our big discussion topic today. What are we chatting about? Well, I don't know. What are we chatting about? <laughs> well, I, I assume we're going to be t- chatting a bit about Ross 2 and, and the NAV2 project within that. So I think we talked a bit about areas where we, we need some contributions in the Ross world. And I think that's the, always the thing we harp on in open source, contributions, contributions, contributions. But I don't know if there is anything in, in particular you want to talk about about those contributions. Well, let's say, let's say I'm coming in and I'm a gifted amateur. Where would you want me to put my time? Where do you think is the biggest gaps that you see? An, an area that's that's very it's very broad and yet receives very little attention and this is kind of the the status quo utilities I'd say like things like PCL ROS and uh, image pipeline and OpenCV ROS bridges and th- these kinds of tools which people kind of take for granted saying oh yeah it's here but also doesn't receive a whole lot of attention for for you know a number of reasons but when I first started at Samsung Research I took over the maintenance of these things because they were largely abandoned you know so I, I helped lead the porting effort over over to Roth 2 did a bit of myself but largely actually worked on on uh, recruiting contributors to do the the bulk of the work itself these tools were made originally I think at Will Garage and not really played a lot with, with since then in both PCL and now there's things like Open 3D and OpenCV and I assume there's other competitors in, in that area as well really don't have any updates made to it. So none of the new algorithms have like the components made for it. And even some of the older algorithms probably aren't really API compatible or have like so many like, you know, if defs for like different versions that, you know, there are, are totally legacy from a decade ago. And I think there's a lot of attention here to make these like modular perception components that can be utilized by a larger set of robotic systems moving forward. I think it just needs like a fresh redesign from the ground up. And I think that's the kind of thing that, you know, a lot of novice users will be generally aware of PCL as a library and generally aware of OpenCV as a library. And uh, bridging that to to ROS2, I think is a, is a really great, really great area of contribution to, to work with some senior architects to, to figure out solutions start implementing those. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, even us just recently, we've been trying to find a decent way to measure and subscribe to our TSP streams and figure out their latency and fuse them into image pipeline. And there's a few people who've kind of written 
G-string wrappers, but there's nothing been updated and, and OpenCV isn't really built for that sort of thing. And like, there's a lot of gaps that slow down development more than it should. Yeah. And none of this stuff is proprietary, right? Like a G-Streamer plugin shouldn't be proprietary. I think it's actually a Samsung thing as well. That was that was donated to List Foundation a bit ago, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah no, and it, yeah, it is a little baffling to me that more attention has been, been played to it. But at the same level, I, I understand, you know, as a former, formerly a more corporate user of these perception technologies, you know, very infrequently did I need something so building blocks friendly to modify, you know, I kind of have a pipeline in mind that I was thinking about and having to deal with like, is the zero copy really zero copy when you're dealing with these very large things coming at high frequencies? It's always a concern. So, you know, sometimes it's it's uh, it's easier to say, hey, subscribe to sensor data, write everything in my own my own perception scripts, and then move, move forward from that that point. But then that that's the same problem of a lot of things that Ross helps deal with is trying to remove the, oh, we make these one-off scripts for everything. And so maybe from where things were in Ross 1, it's time to, to reevaluate that that consideration for us too, especially, you know, when we're adding, you know, products like uh, behavior trees and, and navigation. So you have the ability to have much more modular little components doing but little things as part of your larger system. And then you have more more commercial products like Movement Studio, which have nice little sequential blocks you can program for industrial automation types of tasks that really lend them, themselves well to these kind of technologies. I think they just need to be rethought for the 21st century, so to speak. But <laughs> although I think, it, yeah, it's all 21st century technology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, I do feel including OpenCV and things kind of got stuck in like the late 2000s, early 2010s. Yeah. And ML kind of leapfrogged it. And you see a lot of the ML libraries used outside of robotics are kind of a little bit more modern, a little bit more architected differently and and, and more multi-architecture, whereas a lot of the a lot of the older robotic stuff hasn't quite bridged that gap yet. Yeah, you know, open ROS integrations with like, you know, TensorFlow and PyTorch and all those kinds of things. It's always an interesting topic is it, it's it feels like it, it's an obvious kind of low-hanging fruit to have done. But then when you actually look at like what do you need to do, it's like there's, you know, when you're actually doing the inferencing, it's like 20 lines that are not like totally specific, but a lot of it is relatively specific to the model that you're you're creating. And so that's all application specific anyway. And the raw stuff wrapping around that is another 20 lines of code. So it's kind of, it, it's almost trivial to, to yeah. make that, you know, whenever, whenever somebody says, oh, look, I made a PyTorch wrapper for Ross. It's like a 40 line script. I just, you know, eye roll, whatever, yeah. you know, moving on kind of thing. But yeah, there, there really should be some better integrations there, but I'm, I'm not really sure what that looks like. That's that's fair. Maybe maybe the meta point here should be we need a way to share those small pieces and examples in a way, because myself, if I can't find something directly, I'll go to Ross Discourse or whatever. Right. And I think that's great. But I, but I don't know if that's the right path forward to kind of depend on a fully distributed community kind of forum as a knowledge base. I don't know if anybody's kind of made a push towards being a zero to 100 tutorial for all these components for Ross. Have you thought of Yeah, I mean, you know, with infinite time and infinite resources, yeah. sure. But but also like, you know, that, that that you're starting to branch what what would be a commercial product at that point yeah. to that level of documentation. I'm not sure that like, you know, because the minute you say like poof that all my documentation exists for everything that currently exists under the sun, you know, three years later, you know, I've added eight more algorithms to Nap2. Ross 2 is based on Sino you know, yeah. now. And you know, it's just like, you know, the things the world's flipped upside down but uh, by that point. So it's a it's a never ending battle, but that's and I think that's why this is it's a good incremental battle to, to start documenting the things that are consistent and that never change. And yeah. the new bleeding edge stuff, I think, is always going to be to a degree in every open source community, not as well documented. And, and but it's also those are the technologies being used by the true industry experts, not being used by you know the novice, novice the, the hobbyists or whatever. Folks. Yeah, exactly. It's going to take them a long time before they ever hit those points and, and to begin with. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're 
When you're thinking of contributions from the community, do you feel that this falls more towards, and going forward, do you feel it falls more towards individual contributors or companies or mix? Like, do you see where that balance may lie? Yeah, no, I definitely, I mean, it's definitely a mix. So yeah, as part of NAV2, I've, I've worked with college students, you know, in terms of doing projects at larger companies, startups, large companies themselves, individuals who are, who are just doing it on their nights and weekends, you know, pr- pretty much everything in between. And each of them have a, a part of the puzzle that they can help fit into. So, you know, for the the companies, this is where I want to see larger contributions, like new algorithms, new systems, you know, major architecture efforts that that are, you know, obviously in line with the companies, I'm not just saying like, hey, let's go dump a million dollars in infrastructure for things that aren't even related to our products, right? It should be in the direction where you're going, but, you know, understanding that core robotics technology is not itself, generally speaking, a competitive advantage. Sometimes it can be, but largely speaking, I don't think it usually is. And, you know, seeing more of that happening, and, and I think that that's not happening a whole lot right now. This is where you see most of the new technologies happening and move it are, are motivated by Picnic, who's, you know, stealing, not stealing money, but, you know, taking money from, you know, companies to do various things to, to open source it. And then NAV2, it's largely just been, you know, my personal R&D efforts on the side whenever I'm not responding to the people's tickets and stuff that to get to get real systems done. But, you know, I, I really look forward to a future and this is kind of the future I've been encouraging and has started to, to gain more momentum in, in the recent months to having companies with interesting pieces of technology stand up and say, yeah, we will open source this because we recognize that making a 10% better perception algorithm isn't something that's going to stop our competitors from taking over us, right? But yeah, then you have the, the, the individual contributors where I don't expect somebody nights and weekends to go through and do like a thousand engineering hours project, you know, themselves. There are some people like that and I've worked with them and they're, they're you know, they're 10x fantastic kind of people, but that's, you know, you can't expect everyone you interact with in the world to be like that. So yeah, for, for them, you know, there's, you know, smaller kind of projects, you know, bug fixes, uh, documentation updates, especially if they're using a lot of the tutorials, they're the greatest people to tell me where things aren't clear because, you know, I've been doing navigation stuff for a decade now. And it's not always obvious to me what's not obvious to them. I'll say I, I try to write things to be extremely approachable and I, and I make a point not to use a lot of industry jargon when I don't have to. But with that said, you know, I'm, I'm only human and there is a point where, oh, you assume everyone that you interact with knows what you know. But, you know, in fact, that, that, that can't possibly be true. <laughs> I think that's uh, trying to figure out where where that line is. It's not always uh, good for everybody. I think I'm better than average at it, but I don't. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> um, these other people would have to be the, the judge of that. No, I mean our engineering teams would be very happy working with your stuff. No question. Okay, awesome. Well, it makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah. The, the benefits of working at a, at a research organization where I'm not under massive time pressure to, to deliver in a particular timeline beyond my own timeline that I want to deliver in. So I've got my own internal pressures, but that's not the same thing as like. Ship it. Yeah, ship, ship it, it now. Yeah. yeah, so I can spend time on unit test coverage. I can spend time on our on proper architecture and documentation, things that, you know, I, I, I expect at like a principal or staff level that most of those kind of people would push back to do similar things, but maybe not to the extensive degree that, that I've been able to. You gotcha. With the kind of the changes that we discussed a few episodes ago in, in OSRF and OSRC, is is there now space in the ROS community for kind of a Red Hat equivalent in ROS or maybe Ubuntu equivalent in ROS? Or do you think we don't need that sort of thing? I'm going to try to understand the parallel you're trying to draw. So I would say there's Linux as an OS is kind of a big amorphous thing that you could go in 50 million different directions. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, if you're a beginner, you can just download Ubuntu and go for it. And if you're if you're doing something corporate and serious and you need serious support, you go to Red Hat and get a Red Hat distro, which is supported and has specific service agreements and those sort of things. Yeah. D- does Ross need a sort of same thing or are we okay without it? So it's not you to describe it that way, but I think we already have that, right? You know, people like Apex OS or whatever, but you know, these things aren't open source. So I don't, I don't think that moving 
moving forward, there's going to be like a Ross Dash hardened or whatever, a Ross Dash real time that is also going to be equivalently open source. I think that if we had something like that, then, you know, we would, everyone would just be using it. It would just be Ross. But yeah, I think there, there will be products that, that are made to harden it. Apex definitely exists for that. Who knows what Intrinsic's doing, you know, behind behind the, the magic curtains. But I suspect that there's something like that might, you know, come out of it at some point, if not not immediately at some point in the future. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is to design to actual needs, you know, especially the canonical folks typically have problems where there's not really a lot of business. They have a lot of desire to make money and they take a lot of money to do that, but they haven't been successful in converting that into actual money. So I, I, I don't necessarily think that the Linux model is something to be replicated uh, necessarily. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Well, coming back to it then, what is another kind of gap you see in the community aside from maybe the direct contribution side of things? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the the less sexy stuff, but infrastructure. This goes anywhere from like the Ross build farm kind of stuff, you know, that's awfully complicated. And I'll have to say, even I have not a sufficient understanding of it, talking in great, great detail. You'd, ha- you'd have to talk to Stephen Ragnarok for that. Yeah. But, you know, even in, in the individual projects, like, you know, NAV2, you know, we have our own our, our own CI system. We have our own build farm equivalency. We have our own, you know, binaries. We, we, we you know, distribute and release and processes attached to that. And a lot of that's the really thankless work that's very difficult to, to get funded and, and to deal with. And I'm sure Picnic Robotics is a similar kind of struggle where, As you know, do we. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's quite, quite difficult, especially for the scale of the project that, that NAV2 represents. So yeah, more contributions to help make these systems better. I mean, a lot of there are just kind of things that we did because this was the most obvious thing to us at the time that might not be representative of the current state of the art of systems. That said, you know, huge shout out to, to Rough and White. He's he is the CI czar as far as I'm concerned now too. I mean, whatever whatever he wants to do goes because he you know he he does a lot of a lot of really great work with optimizing our build times. He made caching plugins for Colcon and a bunch of this magic stuff to make the the Nap2 repository actually be able to build on the free tier of Circle CI, which is quite amazing. Especially <laughs> especially as the more and more I add, it's like we always run into more and more problems. Like it's like oh hey I made I added this like templated plugin. It's like oh like now our build builds take over an hour, and so he invented this new con caching thing to make that work and then oh then I, I threw in the MPPI controller which also is template has a ton of these plugins it's like oh now we're over two hours and you know, <laughs> you know, you, you know figures out the, the magic to make everything compile and turn over and we've actually had to reach out to Circle CI a few times saying hey like can you give us like a higher tier and just like, you know, on the free and, and they're just like, well, actually, you know, we looked at it and actually you're already using like the highest of the high that we give anybody on, uh, yeah, that's not paying us, you know, bunches and bunches of Fantastic. money. So it's like, oh, okay. So, you know, th- thank you, Circle CI. But yeah, there's definitely some problems there. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, infrastructure is a big area of using help. I mean, I, I don't think anybody, even at OSRF, is super happy with the build farm situation that is there today, but millions everybody, of dollars. Everybody loves Jenkins. Yeah. Favorite thing. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, they invested millions and mil- literally millions of dollars in, in it. And I, I don't know how much it costs to run it on an annual basis, but I've heard I've heard numbers in the you know hundreds of thousands of dollars that it takes to run all that stuff every year. And yeah, moving over to GitHub Actions for things might be great or moving into other infrastructure. But again, it requires millions of dollars of assets to, to do that. So having more community assistance, either financially directly, which, you know, OSRF now has a uh, donation box, which you definitely go donate money to. Yep. Uh, and it's tax deductible for all the companies. But other than that, you know, spending some time and helping quash issues or, or, or improving things or start at least looking at what a roadmap could be to move into another direction so that once there is, you know, interest that we we know what we're going to do. Because right now it's kind of one of these resigned that the state the state is the state because it is the state. <laughs> yeah, no, and we shouldn't do that. That's, that's how big open source projects die is by not pushing them forward. 
and not improving the state. So you heard it here first, folks. Send donations to Ross and and yeah, yeah. OSRF, Machine Time. OSRF's website OSRF. now has yep. now has now has that box set up now that after that acquisition. So that yeah, definitely definitely donate money. You know, if I, if I was a company, I'd be donating money to them for sure. I think fifty dollars a month. You know, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That's awesome. What's a gap that we've seen? Polymath. We we have a very specific and narrow focus. I'd say sort of a gap we've seen is that there's still a lot of inertia in Ross One that not everything has moved over to Ross Two. It's particularly like weird esoteric drivers or devices or yeah, we, a few stuff. examples. I actually keep a list of of those kind of complaints just so that there is a central. Li- what, what do you what are you talking I, about? I don't remember. Oh, okay, but I'll, I'll pull it up. I'll, I'll <laughs> no send worries. it to you for sure. But even even stuff like we're we're talking to forget advanced micro something that does a radar device. Okay. And we're like, where's your driver? Like, here's a Ross driver. Okay. Well, Ross one. Okay. Well, we'll have to port it over and, and do that sort of stuff. So I think that's been good. Ross one is basically sunsetting in 25, 25, 25. Yeah. So better get moving on all this. Yeah. Yeah. And so what's interesting, I forgot who I was talking to last week, week before something like that, where they were basically saying, oh yeah, there's not any momentum over to Ross two, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm just like, I don't think that's true. And so what's really nice is that there's the, the, the metrics.ross.org, which yeah. is something I don't often reference, but every now and then I do. And it looking at it, I mean, the last metrics we saw was that 70% or I think it was 72 or whatever percent of people were using some Ross two distribution. So it's already more than half, nice, lo- far more than half actually. And then, you know, 20 whatever percent left over running some version of Ross one. And that's measured by like binary installs and that, that kind of thing. So, you know, I think we already have largely moved that direction, but I mean, it's always been a struggle. I mean, even before Ross two came out of getting, even just getting uh, manufacturers to support their own drivers, you know, Kat Scott o- over at Intrinsic has, has been harping on these companies to so support their own drivers, not just have community people doing it for free or whatever for a long time now with, you know, varying degrees of success. Yeah, it's been an ongoing struggle regardless of of the Roth two transition. So I think what we're seeing is really just a manifestation of that same that same impact more than more than it's a qualifier on like the quality of Roth two or companies using Roth two. Oh, absolutely. Drivers in particular have always been kind of kind of shit. Always, always a very difficult thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's always very heartening when we go to go to talk to a new sensor manufacturer. Yeah, great. Yeah, let's try it out. Here's a Windows binary. <laughs> okay. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I, uh, I I have some stories. I, I think I think I'm still under NDA from previous companies for though. Unfortunately, <laughs> ask me another three years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though no, there was there was plenty of those. Here, run this little tiny virtual machine just to run your stupid driver because you can't. Yeah, be bothered. yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. So, if people want to learn more about contributing or working with you or working along goals that you suspect, what should they do? Show up at your house maybe at three in the morning or I mean throw I, rocks at the window it's three in the morning you know I, uh, I'm, I'm working pretty hard to get my sleep schedule in place so at least wait until like 7 30 okay. yeah, it's all at 7 30 in the morning but yeah I'll, I'll give you my address for the show notes awesome awesome no, no, yeah but, yeah, but <laughs> more, more seriously um so Ross answers um I'm active on that if you tag things that are relevant to me I will typically respond assuming it's not something that's like okay this has been answered so many times the world over it's like it's not it's not worth my time to answer but how do I install Ross no edit yeah, yeah like, like, oh why do I have this TF, why have this TF error? It's like, yeah. okay, I'm not responding to that, yeah. but you know, most things I will. So for answers, how to get started, great, great location for that. For like more proactive things, so there's a Ross Slack, which you can sign and find the readme file of the NAP2 project. That's a great place to talk to me. I'm, I'm always on that. So, I, and I have you know, plenty of conversations through, through that, that medium. If you're interested in like actively contributing, it's a great place to reach out to me. If you have bugs or feature requests or all that kind of stuff, you have the issue tracker, then within NAP2 itself is a great, great location. I'll say, unless you feel like you're in a, in a particularly, Special situation, like you're like a 
your Dieter Fox or, you know, whatever, do not email me. Uh, it, it will automatically be deleted. I, I, I have too many people asking for help via email and I just, I cannot handle that. So unless there's a particular thing that you think needs to be sidebarred me privately, do not email me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Really, really appreciate you coming in and visiting. Yeah, this is fun. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>